seems like in the book of Acts, every time you turn the corner, you just encounter one of these incredible stories that is so rich. Uh, we're going to do that today with the story of Cornelius. Um, remembering that one of the major themes that's in Luke, and there are many of them, and the book of Acts is woven kind of like a tapestry with these themes kind of woven together. One of the major themes we've seen is going to play a major role in today's story. And that, that theme is the coming down of walls that divide God's people. Uh, do you remember what the first wall was? Yeah, chapter 2, Pentecost story, the wall of languages, okay? Uh, chapter 3, we've got this man on the, st the, the steps of the temple. He cannot enter because... Yeah, he was not whole. He had been lame, lame from birth. Uh, that wall comes down. Then we have uh, Philip, who goes up into Samaria, which is sort of the half-Jews. That wall comes down. Then he goes down the coast. He encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. That wall comes down. And so today, where we are in, in the book of Acts, is we're with Peter, uh, who we find in the book of Acts, of all of the original 12 disciples, is is the most unique and uh, actually Paul in his letters confirms this uh, for example Peter is the only disciple that we know of who during this early period actually left Jerusalem all the rest of them stay there they stay at the home church they stay at the temple now tradition says decades later of course they begin to wander off Peter's the first he moves out of the world of the Jews and he begins to move up and down the countryside in the world of the Gentiles and that's going to play an important part of this story today. Now, we want to jump a little bit because where we're at today is uh, Luke begins with stories about the early church, and he's going to move towards his great hero. And the great hero for Luke would be Paul. And so most of the book of Acts is the story of Paul. And in chapters 9 and 10, we get a little bit of overlap because Luke's going to introduce Paul to us in the, uh, what is called the conversion story in the road to Damascus. And then he's going to jump back to Peter, and then he's going to jump back to Paul. So what we're going to do is pull Peter a little bit forward one week so that when we turn to Paul, we can just take the, the story of Paul and go forward. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 10, and then next week we'll go back to Acts chapter 9. In Caesarea, now there are multiple Caesareas. You know which one this is? It's the big one. It's the important one. It's the Roman, where the Roman governor is. This is uh, Caesarea Mari Maritima, the city of Caesar by the sea. It's the one that you visit when you go to Israel, which has all those ruins out there. It's, it's a wonderful archaeological site. Uh, there was a man named Cornelius. Now, I-U-S on the end tells you what about him? Latin. Okay, this is no Jew. Uh, he's a centurion. Remember your Roman military structure? centurions over how many a hundred so he's an officer he's over a hundred men so he carries some weight there he's of the Italian cohort now one of the things that Rome would do is that they would use uh, local soldiers they're called auxiliaries and they would bring in their army and often their army in a, an area like Palestine might be mostly auxiliaries but he is not he is of the Italian cohort which means he's a Roman from Italy. He's about as Roman as you can get. Uh, he's also a devout man. Now, you can be devout by many different faiths. He could be a devout pagan. He could be a devout, uh, you know, the Roman Empire had 50 different religions at least. He feared God with his whole household. 
Now, have you ever heard the term God-fear? Because that's a technical term that meant something very specific in Judaism, which is a, pay, a, a non-Jew who practices the Jewish religion but has not converted, has not become a proselyte, probably because of the requirement for circumcision, because in the Greco-Roman Empire, it was considered horrendous to alter the body. Now, we come a long way since then. Everybody alters everything <laughs> these days. But, and in the Roman Empire, you simply did not do that. He gave alms generously to the people. Now, almsgiving is not associated with any Greco-Roman religion, okay? It is associated with one religion in the ancient world, Judaism. Very quickly, it becomes associated with Judaism and Christianity. Sixth century AD, it's associated with Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, zakat. Okay, so this is a Western religion thing. Prayed constantly. He's a God-fearer. He gives alms, and according with Jewish tradition, he's praying constantly. So you can guess at this point, without Luke telling you more, what God he's praying to. He's praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Luke goes out of his way in this description to give us two pieces of very important information that are critical if we're going to understand this story. And th this whole chapter is like this. Luke's going to drop these little hints, and they're not insignificant. They're hints that just simply drive the story. First, without a doubt, Cornelius, with a Latin Roman name, is in fact a Gentile. He is a, he's a, uh, not born a Jew. He's a Roman. He's a soldier in the Roman army. He is an officer uh, some of the leadership. He's from Italy, from the Italian cohort. The second thing Luke wants to run by us is let us know this is not any ordinary Gentile. There's all kinds of Gentiles out there. This is an extraordinary Gentile. And again, this plays a very important part in the story. Uh, he is a God-fearer. You know, they've actually discovered around the Roman Empire and in the, uh, in the stadiums, uh, the Greek stadiums and the Roman stadiums, that they uh, find chiseled into the stone. If you, you've seen some of these, you've probably seen this, where it says, uh, uh, reserved for the God-fearers. They actually had a location in many places. And they've even, in some of the ancient synagogue ruins, they've found reserved for the God-fearers. So it was an, an understood group. Uh, he's a devout man. So not only does he fear the Lord, does he fear the Lord in terms of the faith of Israel, but he's devout about it. He's not just on the sitting on the edges. He gives alms generously, and he prays constantly. Now that prayer image, Luke's going to pick up and develop a little bit more because uh, this prayer seems to be what lies behind the story. Later, uh, Luke will add, just to, you know, s further down the story, a little bit more information. He's going to add that he is a just and upright man. So not only does he fear the God, give alms, and pray, but he's got a strong sense of justice. And as you know, the, the scriptures, the Old Testament, is being a just person, a righteous person, a big important part of the faith. Of course, it is, and he's one of those. Uh, he's spoken of by, well spoken of by the Jewish nation. The Jews respect him. And we have in, in the, the stories of, of Jesus, remember when the centurion comes to Jesus because his son has died? And it mentions there that he's well spoken of by all the Jewish people of that town. So again, a God-fearer who has a lot of key commands, respect. You know. 
and I would assume this is by the Jewish community at Caesarea Maritima. Uh, he's found favor with God. Now, of all the things, the accolades he's got, that's the one I think he would really want. We pick up at verse 3. So far, what he's done is he's introduced this character to us, given us a little background. Now, he's going to narrate the story. What happens to this God-fearing Gentile officer? One afternoon at about 3 o'clock. Ding, 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 ding. Bell's going off. 3 o'clock means what? Prayer time. It's one of the three hours of the day when sacrifices are made in the temple and Jewish prayer originated by praying at the same time that sacrifices were made in the temple. So even if you lived 5,000 miles away from the temple, you could pray at the same time the priests were offering sacrifice. And that appears to be where a lot of the prayer came from. Okay? He has a vision in which he clearly saw, no doubt about this, an angel of God coming in and saying to him, addressing him personally, Cornelius. That will get your attention. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers. Remember what's Cornelius been doing? He's been praying at the hours of prayer, according to Jewish tradition, and your alms, the, 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 that which you give to the poor, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, which means God's heard your prayers. God has seen your almsgiving. God knows what kind of a man you are. Now, send men to Joppa. Ever been to Joppa? We got to go to Joppa last year. That little place out on the coast, wonderful old Palestinian city. To a certain Simon, who is called Peter. Now, we need to be real specific because this story is full of Simons. We've got multiple Simons here. Does this Simon call Peter? And we know his story. He's lodging with another Simon, a tanner. Now you have to ask yourself, well, what possible relevance is that piece of information? Well, the whole story hinges on it. That the second Simon is a tanner is the pivot around which the story pins, spins. Okay? Whose house is by the seaside. Then the angel who spoke to him had left... He called two of his slaves, so this is a slave-owning Roman, uh, and a devout soldier. Hmm. The soldier is devout. Want to guess what religion? We're not told. But devout with Luke would probably mean this is another God-fear from the ranks of those who served him. After telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa, which, by the way, is just a short hop, skip, and a jump. You know, it's not even a day's journey. Three o'clock. What it literally says is the ninth hour again. This is that notation. Uh, one of the things that's going to be going on in this story is you've got Cornelius praying at the hours of prayer. And who's the other person in this story? Peter. Who's going to be praying at the hours of prayer. So part of what's going on here, you've got two men praying to God according to Jewish tradition at Jewish times. You've got to be darn careful about praying because God just might answer it. And then the apple cart's going to get turned upside down, okay? Uh, this is the time of the afternoon sacrifice to the temple. It's one of the traditional hours of prayer. About 200 years before Jesus, this, this begins to surface. Uh, Luke is again giving us another indicator that Cornelius is a God-fearer. He prays constantly, and he's keeping it at the hours of the Jewish tradition. 
Uh, one of the questions you might ask, and this is not answered by Luke, but it's implied, what might he be praying for? If you've got a, a Gentile praying to God, and he's a God-fearer, what might, just let that hang out there for now, what might he be praying for? Uh, what prayers might God answer him? He's a guy that's got a lot going for him, but obviously not everything. Now Luke shifts to the other key player in the story. He wants to, he's going to go down a little bit south to another little town down there to Peter. Now Luke has, and we skipped it, but Luke has in the previous chapter, the chapter talked about Paul, he just sort of mentions a couple of things about Peter that we just need to lift up because it, it's the background of the story. Two pieces of information that we need to know as we pick up this story and begin to run with it. First of all, Peter's left Jerusalem. Uh, James the Just does not leave Jerusalem. We got lots of people leaving Jerusalem, but they're not the 12. They're Philip and then the other, you know, the, the Hellenists. But the Hebrew leaders, the 12 disciples, so far as we know, all stay in Jerusalem at Mother Church, right there at the home base, except one. We got one tooling around the countryside, which tells you something about Peter. Uh, as Luke says, he's traveling here and there among the brothers. Uh, the other piece of information is that Peter's staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. This is so important that Luke, first of all, mentions it the last thing in the previous chapter <coughs> before he starts the story of, uh, uh, of Cornelius. And then twice more during the story of Cornelius, he mentions, and by the way, Peter's at the house of Simon the Tanner. Peter's at the house of Simon the Tanner. So what's Luke telling you? It's important. Threefold repetition among Hebrew culture, okay? Now, what we had, first of all, is Cornelius has a vision. Now, Peter, I know the Bible calls it a dream, but it, the, the word that's used is not really dream. It's slightly different from that. At about noon the next day, remember what the three hours of worship were? Nine, noon, and three. Uh, actually, it was sunrise, nine, noon, and three, and then when the sun went down. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, uh, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Again, this is Jewish tradition. He became hungry. It happens, okay? You thought you were going to be real religious and go pray, and you just got hungry. He wanted something to eat, and while he was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Um, dream is probably not the best, but dream trance, something like that. It, it's, it's kind of a visionary state. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down being lowered to the ground by its corners so it would be coming from heaven down to earth in it were all kinds of four-footed creatures reptiles and birds of the air I don't know what he ate for lunch if he ate but he should not ever eat that again okay <laughs> then he heard a voice crying get up Peter kill and eat and Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. Now, if you knew that list, uh, there was obviously several things for that. One thing, snakes, you don't eat if you're a Jew. And so part of what drives this story is you've got everything possible you can eat. And for Jews, large pieces of that would be unacceptable. You simply cannot do that. Remember the book of Maccabees? They would rather die than break the kosher laws. 
And this was written about a, s- a century before this story. The voice said to him again a second time. God is persistent, okay? What God has made clean, this is actually the punchline of the whole story. This is, the, this is the, the center of the story, that and the business of being a tanner. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. You've got your understanding what's acceptable, what's not, what's clean, what's not, what's kosher, what's not. But in the end, who decides those things? It's God. It's not you. If you're a Jew, you're following God's command. This happened three times. A couple of things about that. One, obviously, Peter's a little reluctant. It's got to be repeated. And second, you've got your threefold repetition. This is driving home the point. And the thing was suddenly not vanished, not faded away, was taken up to heaven. Now, in the ancient world, who was in heaven? Interesting. Non-kosher food going up to God. Okay? It's real intentional. Now, about noon, Peter goes up to pray. Uh, again, this is a traditional Jewish time. Uh, so that we have both for Cornelius and for Peter, what's driving the story is they're both praying. They're both praying at Jewish times, and the prayers are about to be answered in very unexpected ways. Um, and the vision that he has, this uh, vision, trance, whatever it is, of this sheet coming down, with all this food on it. What, what we're really dealing with here is, as, as we know, in Second Temple Judaism, particularly the two or 300 years before Jesus, uh, this became the defining characteristic of Judaism, the hallmark. What does it mean to be a Jew? Jews practice kosher. There are some things they will eat. There are some things they will not. It is such a big deal that we have multiple stories that they would rather die I mean, there are even stories in World War II and, and early, you know, in, in last couple hundred years of, of Jews who were told after they ate something that it was not kosher, that it was pork, and sp- uh, almost going into aphylactic shock. You know, the, 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 it was such a shock to their system, it affected their health. What we're dealing with here is the boundary marker, and it's a, it's a boundary marker and it's an identity marker. It's an identity marker in the sense that it defines what is a Jew. A Jew keeps kosher. A Jew practices circumcision. A Jew keeps Shabbat. A Jew keeps separate from the non-Jew. So these boundaries. So it's not just any old issue. By the way, this is the issue that drives the book of Acts. This is the issue that's going to get the Apostle Paul in trouble up at Antioch and at Galatia and at Philippi. And this is the issue behind the Jerusalem Council in the year 50 A.D., this whole issue of what does it mean to be a Jew, what's required, and can we be separated together. So the large sheet comes down, clean and unclean, all mixed. What's interesting in the dream is there is no distinguishing. There's no separation. Now, at this point, Judaism is based utterly on making distinctions, on separating things. You've got that silly wall at the temple and all those dividing things. Yet the image says, coming down out of heaven is this sheet, just all there just all mixed up together. Uh, the command eat without any distinction, without any concern for what's clean or unclean. Peter, as any Jew would be in the first century, is simply appalled. 
uh, he quickly says to God, not only will I not do it, I have never done that in my life. I have never done that. I am a good Torah observant Jew. Your people don't do those things because the Torah law, Leviticus, says don't do that. There's clean and unclean. God makes a distinction. Three times, Peter objects. Uh, he emphatically denies he's ever done it or he would ever do it in the future, which is basically saying kind of no to God. It's not going to happen. Now, in the next two, chapter, two chapters, we're going to see twice more Peter's going to object back to God. So three times, threefold repetition, three times Peter says to God, no way. And yet he's going to do what he says he won't do. Um, a little bit later, as Peter narrates the story of what happened here to Cornelius, he adds a little detail that's critical to the story. Acts 10:28. Cornelius goes before, uh, um, or Peter goes before Cornelius in the household of the Gentiles. He says, by the way, Cornelius, you know I'm a Jew. And it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. Not only can I not eat your food by Jewish law. By the way, there is a, technically there's no Jewish law, but it becomes Jewish tradition that you simply should not even be in the presence of a Gentile. So the punchline is when the vision is when the voice comes from heaven and says what God has made clean, you must not call unclean or profane. And that's, that's a directive from God. It's very, very direct to Peter. Now, at the surface level, this is a discussion about kosher. This is a discussion about food. But is that the real issue? What's the real issue? Separation. The real issue, folks, is people. Who can you mix with? Who can you mingle with? And who do you have to stay away from? At the surface level, it's, it's food. And this is, again, an issue that's going to reverberate through the book of Acts. You know. Paul in the Galatians says about Peter, I condemn the man to his face because at one point in Antioch he would eat with Gentiles, but then the brothers came from Jerusalem and told him he was wrong, and he pulled back and no longer ate with the Gentiles. And then Paul is just livid. Okay? This is that same issue. It's just going to tumble forward. Clean and kosher, uh, clean, unclean, uh, much more than food. Again, the issue is people. Who's acceptable, who's not, who you can be with, who you cannot be with. And at the house of Cornelius, and, and as the story progresses just a little bit further, it is Peter who makes the connection. In the story so far, it's all about food. But when Peter retells the story to Cornelius, Peter says to uh, Cornelius, you know, it's not just about food. It's about people. And here am I, a Jew, in your house, Cornelius, against Jewish law, in a house full of Gentiles. So, and the, the connection that's being made here is the connection back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 20, verses 24 and 25. Uh, this is part of what's called the holiness code. And the issue here is, is how do God's, God is a holy God. And God's people are called to be holy. So how do we be holy for the holy God? And then this is, this is actually what everything in this chapter is moving against. 
I am the Lord your God. I have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean, food and people. So Leviticus makes God makes the connection between clean and holy, and the call is that you must separate yourself. Now, this part of Leviticus, most scholars think, was actually finalized in this form actually after they came back. Okay, Peter's vision, the distinction, is simply done away with. They're all mixed. And what God calls clean, you dare not call profane. And in the vision, what is God called clean? Everything. Which is why you have that impressive list of what's in that blanket. Because it's all there, including the, the prohibited stuff. And then God, uh, Peter's vision ends with this. I mean, if you're a Jew, this is a shocking image. All this unacceptable stuff that you've been told your entire life you cannot eat, God just takes it up and welcomes it into heaven. Uh, and that, again, that would be a very shocking image. Uh, and it signifies God's acceptance of those things. Peter's dream, we're about to move off of it, but the, the dream itself, a defining principle of Second Temple Judaism is being called into question by whom? God. God is calling into question one of the foundations of the Jewish faith, not the faith before the exile, but the faith as it had developed after the exile. By the way, there is no evidence that in Solomon's temple there was any dividing line between Gentile or between Jew and non-Jew. That came after the exile and after the, 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 uh, the restoration. The whole idea of the kosher as becoming an identity marker and all those kinds of things, it's after they came back from the exile and they got this little Jewish droplet in this ocean of pagans this ocean of Gentiles, that all of a sudden the issue became how do we preserve our identity as God's people? How do we stay distinct when everything around us is different from us? And so those, those boundary markers suddenly became very, very important. And now here's God saying, not so important. Okay, maybe they even missed the point. Uh, so God is asking Peter to breach the very foundations of his faith, which would be, you know, no wonder Peter says no. No wonder Peter says no three times. No wonder God has to keep coming back to Peter and saying, you know, Peter, listen up. P and Peter's just hand over his ears. And I'm not going to listen to that. That is contrary to everything that I know. Now, Luke has actually, in the story leading up to this, given us a couple of hints why this story is about Peter and not about John, Thomas, Andrew, James, Bartholomew, or one of the other disciples. Of all the original 12 disciples, there's probably only one that could have had, possibly had any kind of openness to this message. Of all of them, all of them that could be, Peter is the logical choice. We've already heard one reason. What have we learned about Peter? What did Luke tell us? He's not in... Jerusalem. He's out in the larger pagan world. He's moving around on the coast. And by the way, the coast was not a Jewish stronghold. The coast is where the empire is. Uh, he's the only one that Luke says is here and there beyond Jerusalem. 
moving in the larger world of the Gentiles. And by the way, this is not just geography because the second thing then comes into play. It's that, that piece that, that Luke just sort of dropped in there and then he mentions it three times. Simon the Tanner. Okay. Turns out that's a critical piece of information. Um, in that story, which says that Peter is residing in the house of Simon the Tanner, what Luke has just told you is that Peter is not a strict Jew. He is not one of these ultra-Orthodox types. You don't stay in the house of a tanner unless you're playing pretty loose with this stuff to start out. Um, three times, 943, right before chapter 10 starts, he's in the house of a tanner. Twice in chapter 10, verse 6, verse 34, remind you he's in the house of a tanner. Remind you he's in the house of a tanner. So what the heck is all that about? Well, as a Torah-observant Jew, Peter is actually forbidden by law. Peter can not only not be in the house of a tanner, he cannot be in the town in which a tanner lives. That is forbidden by Jewish law. Uh, much less stay there. Yeah, there, there's, there's two very good reasons. First of all, a tanner handles tides of dead bodies. Right? Okay. Now, is there some Jewish law about dead bodies? Oh, about this much, you know, uh, all over the place. According to Leviticus, this is forbidden. Uh, and by the way, the only exception was made is if an animal was sacrificed in the temple for God, then you got to pass. Otherwise, no. And the chances of the, these critters being, these being tanned from the temple at this location, zero. Okay, Leviticus, this is actually a long passage. I'm just going to throw one verse up here. If an animal of which you may eat dies, if it's not of which you may eat, it's not kosher, it's worse. But even if it's a kosher animal, if it dies, anyone who touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. Now, what's a tanner doing all day? Touching the carcass, okay? The Mishnah, remember the Mishnah? Mishnah is finalized about the year 200 A.D., but we know that the, the lot of the legislation in it dates to the first century B.C., the first century A.D., the time of Jesus, the time of Paul, the time of Acts. So a lot of this tradition. So what's going on in the world? The mission says a Jew cannot be a tanner. A Jew cannot allow his son to be a tanner. A Jew cannot marry a tanner. What it actually says is fathers, don't let your daughters marry a tanner, okay? And tannery may not be in a Jewish town. Matter of fact, it says that you cannot live within X cubits of somebody who's tanning. So you get the idea? Okay. So Luke just casually drops in three times. Where's Peter? He's playing a little loose with Torah, okay? Peter is not a stickler for points. Um, and he's actually in the Gentile town, is what Luke is telling us, uh, with, with, with a tanner. Second, the process of tanning uses, in the ancient world, urine. Uric acid breaks down the protein. It's what's used. Now, it just so happens that there are some legislation about that in the Torah, as you might imagine. So, double whammy on this. Uh, although, some people will point out that, that these are not absolute. There are exceptions 
that we know of. There are some places where Jews were tanners and things like that. But the, the, the very minimum what you can say about Peter is, Peter's not looking like he's overly concerned about the detail of the law. Peter is beginning to move on the edges. He's left Jerusalem. He's left leaving the, the con constriction of, 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 of the Jewish law. And it's no wonder we're going to find him up in Antioch with Paul and some of the stuff that goes on there. Peter and Cornelius men. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision he had had, uh, he's, he's struggling with this issue. Suddenly, the men sent by Cornelius appeared. Timing, timing, timing. There's Peter going, God, what are you talking about? And Gentiles show up on his door. God, give me a break. Uh, they're asking for Simon's house. They were standing by the gate. They called out to ask for the Simon who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, yeah, he's muddling that over, uh, the Spirit said to him, look, three men are searching for you. Duh. Uh, get up, go down, go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And the God that gave him a dream has just planted Gentiles on his doorstep. You know, Peter stands no chance here. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, good Latin name, a centurion. Don't you know Jews love Romans, the occupying power? But an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, that softens it, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, a little pressure, to come to this his house and to hear what you have to say. Now, Peter does not have anything to say unless he's changed his mind about the vision, right? So Luke lets us know that something's happened. Peter invited the men. He gave them lodging. Uh, the next day, he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. Now, Luke's just mentioned uh, some pretty significant stuff. A Jew just invited a group of Gentiles into the home where he's living. It's not his home. Did he have a right to do that? I don't know. Uh, so without narrating it, Luke let us know that Peter has obviously thought twice about the vision and is now starting to buy into it a little bit. Peter invites Gentiles into the home where he's staying. Uh, they spend the night with him. That implies by Jewish hospitality laws, you're going to have dinner and you're going to have breakfast. So now what has Peter done? Eaten with Gentiles. All three of those are ex explicitly forbidden in Jewish law. So here's Peter now skirting well outside the boundaries of Judaism. House of Cornelius. The following day, they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. He had called together his relatives and close friends. Betcha there's not a Jew among them. It's a whole house full of Gentiles, okay? And as Peter talked to Cornelius, he went in and found that many had assembled. Don't know, but a goodly number. He said to them, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. English translation, I ought not be here, but I am. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean, where did he get that idea? So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? 
Remember, this started with Cornelius praying to God. We're not told what he was praying for, but then God responds, and now Peter shows up on his doorstep. Well, the prayer is about to be answered. Cornelius replied, four days ago at this very hour, so we're back in prayer time, three o'clock, I was praying in my house, and suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood about me, got his attention. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your arms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa. To add, he just narrates the whole thing again. By the way, what do we have there at the bottom? Just that little reminder, Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore, I sent for you immediately. You've been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God. Uh, that's a punchline. Yeah, we're all here. <laughs> you know, one prayer got you here. One prayer got me here. We're all here. So what's going to happen? To listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. This is Cornelius to Peter. No pressure. Uh, so now all of us are here. Uh, so here's the image. You've got a Jew standing in a Gentile household full of Gentiles in violation of the law. And you've got a group of Gentiles ready to hear anything Peter has to say. I mean, this is just set up beautifully. All of this orchestrated by whom? Yeah, God's done the entire thing. Dreams, visions, trances, angels. So who has been moving behind the scenes to set up this moment so this event can happen? Peter's speech. Yeah, that, that's the challenge. Cornelius says to Peter, Peter, God got us here, so bring it on. What you got? Okay, this is what he's got. Then Peter began to speak to him. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. And with those words, Second Temple Judaism ceases to exist. Because that is the foundation of Second Temple Judaism. It's the foundation of the Holiness Laws of Leviticus. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, Jesus' version, loves God, loves neighbor, fears the Lord, does what is right, is acceptable to him. Now, again, this is one of the most remarkable statements in the New Testament. Uh, for a Jew in the first century, this is the dismantling. This is one of the reasons that Christianity cannot stay within Judaism. Okay. This, this is one of those indicators that, that Christianity will be moving further and further away and moving out, uh, that God shows no partiality. This fundamental uh, dindy marker has just been tossed out. Clean, unclean, food laws, separateness, circumcision. By the way, if you've been listening to what's been said here, it's just been said none of this is important. Which raises the question, what is important? Well, we have new, new identity markers. Uh, reverence, loving God, doing what's right. And by the way, the way you became a Jew was through circumcision. If we're going to do away with circumcision, we've got to have a new way to become God's people. Do you know what it is? Baptism. And remember uh, the Philip? On the road, pass some water. Is there any reason I shouldn't be? Same question is going to pop up here. We have the Gentile Pentecost. Peter speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Uh, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded 
Why would you be astounded? Where is the Holy Spirit falling? Gentiles. Okay, and this just blows them away because that means that what had happened at Acts 2 to the Jews happens in Acts 10 to the Gentiles. And the whole point of this story is no distinction. Exactly what happens in 2 happens in 10. Again, this whole theme of no distinction between the two. Uh, the sending of the Spirit means that God accepts Cornelius. God accepts the Gentiles. We had that image of all this stuff being pulled into heaven by a sheet. And now in the story of being told, by the way, even outside the dream, it's happening. Everything is being accepted. Everything is being embraced by God. It's become literal. Um, this leads to the baptism. Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people when they have already received the Holy Spirit from God? You want to argue with that? No, I'm not taking God on with that. So the obvious answer, it's a rhetorical question, is of course they can be baptized. He ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they invited him to stay in their pagan, not pagan, their Gentile home for several days. So the whole point of this story, the Pentecost story here, is the idea that there's no distinction, there's no difference, Gentile and Jew, as Paul was saying in Galatians, in Christ there is no slave, no free, no male, no female, no Gentile, nor Jew. And here the story makes that point. God signs off on, God approves uh, the Gentiles, and God's fingerprints everywhere. You know, if you back up through the story, Cornelius' vision, God. Peter's vision, God. Spirit prompting Peter, God. Outpouring of the Spirit to the Gentiles, God. Who's driving this story? God is driving this story. Uh, and that key question, can anybody withhold water? No way anybody's going to hold water. So we have a new way of entering, and it is not through circumcision becoming a Jew. They receive baptism, and they become a part of God's people that way, which is going to become a center to Paul's ministry. Um, circumcision excludes baptism includes um, and the, the story ends with all the barriers down Peter actually stays the Gentiles eats with them um, now this is actually confirmed two places because you might want to ask would Peter you know there's a lot of theology in Acts so the question is would Peter really done that well in Acts we find out that when Peter gets back to Jerusalem he's hauling the carpet he skated a little far out there, okay, for the home folk down there, including uh, James, the brother of Jesus. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to Caesarea to earn circumcised, earn, uh, uncircumcised men and eat with them? Paul tells us in Galatians, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. So this is not some of uh, Luke's storytelling. This is actually a characteristic of Peter. And again, the purpose of the story is very interesting at this point next. What does the story actually do? The story says, who is responsible for the gospel being extended to the Gentiles? Who's, who's responsible? God is responsible. Through what agent? And Peter. What does Paul get blamed for? He gets blamed for that. You know. Part of Luke's story is it's not Paul's fault. We just had him converted, but he hadn't done squat yet. 
uh, it's, uh, Peter is the most important of Jesus' dis- apostles. Um, for Luke, it is very critical that this step be taken, um, not by Paul. For example, had Paul converted Cornelius, would it have been accepted back in Jerusalem? No way. Peter converts Cornelius. Is that acceptable? Well, that's even skating the edge. But at least it can go down. Um, Peter's different. He's a Hebrew. He's an apostle. He's the apostle. He's the leader of the apostles, according to the Gospels. Uh, Luke lets us know that after some reservations, the other apostles in Jerusalem church signed off. So in chapter 11, we have these two verses. Now, the apostles and the believers who were in Judea, that's the hardcore group, heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. They praised God, saying, when God is given even to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. So as Luke narrates the story, nothing that Paul does that we're about to launch into is controversial. It was done first by who? Not pre-Peter. Who's the first one that went to the non-Jew? Philip. Remember? Samaria and the Ethiopian eunuch. Then Peter. And then the home church is signed off on it. What are you guys so upset with Paul for? Paul's not doing a darn thing wrong. Everybody's agreed that what Paul's doing is right. So Peter, Philip, the way Acts is written. You know, there's nothing controversial about what Paul's doing. Later, we're going to find out, particularly from Paul, it's not quite as simple as Luke wants to paint it. This is highly controversial, and there's a lot that's going to be flying around. We're going to have the mission of Paul and Barnabas, and there's going to be controversy surrounding that. So, what's it? That's right. He withdrew, which irritated Paul to no end. Yeah. Even Barnabas betrayed me. He pulled back. So Paul leaves Barnabas and goes off on his own. Barnabas takes Mark kind of thing. Yeah, it's huge. Next week, we're going to shift. Luke has closed the door now to the general church. Luke wants to laser focus on one guy, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul. So next week, we're going to look at chapter 9, the conversion story. And then about four more weeks after that, we'll look at the early ministry.